We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. Thank you, John. As hearing God's Word is such a serious matter, let's spend a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to so understand your Word that we might walk in obedience to you in all things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, down at uh, Piemont, around the bay there, I sometimes go walking with my wife, and there are big boats moored, big private boats, ocean-going boats moored there, just owned privately, and they scream out, I've got it all. Anybody who's got enough money to be able to splurge on one of those three-decked kinds of ocean-going luxury yachts has, at least on all appearances, got it all. But have they? What have you got when you've got it all? What's worth having? What is it that will make life worthwhile? The New Testament says Christians have got it all, and therefore it warns Christians against dissatisfaction, against discontent, about coveting after other people's possessions and other things. But it also challenges those of us who are not Christians as to what is worth having. What are the valuable things that we really can have or should have in God? The argument of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, the passage that John has just read for us, the argument of this passage really is about having it all and being content. But more than being content, about going forwards. It starts with the word therefore, which shows that we're still part of the argument that has gone previously. Although our Bible has new paragraphs and little headings, you'll find that those are not in the original. They've just been added in by 21st century publishers to make it easier for us to follow. You will need to have your Bible open today because it's a short passage, but one we'll look at phrase by phrase. Therefore, given what Paul has already said to the Colossians, given that he is living his life and sacrificing himself that they may be, the end of chapter 1, verse 28, mature in Christ... Given that he works so hard, so that chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery. He wants the Christians in Colossae to have everything that is theirs, to own it, to possess it, to grow up into it. Given Paul's confidence in them, verse 5 of chapter 2, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Given all these things, therefore, he says, what he wants them to do, and then it's described in a piece of logic. The as-so logic. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received, so go on 
Just as you start is how you are to continue. For Christianity doesn't have two messages, one message for non-Christians and another for Christians. Christianity doesn't have two messages, one for baby Christians and another for advanced Christians. Christianity has one message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message you start with is the message you're supposed to continue with. What you are doing as you go on in Christianity is just spelling out the details of what you started with in the first place. So today I'm talking to a group of people here in this building, some of whom are Christians only for a little short period of time. Some of us have been Christians for many, many years. Some of us aren't Christians at all. It's one message for all three audiences. Because as you start, so you are to go on. It's not to move to something else, to something different, to an alternative message. It is to develop and grow out of that message. So let's look at how they received Christ Jesus the Lord. Three words are used, Christ. Christ is a title, it's not a surname. His name was not Mr. J. Christ, found under C in the Bethlehem phone book. His name was Jesus. He was the son of Joseph. And Christ is his title. It means king. It means Messiah, the long-awaited king of kings. It now means the crucified one. For he was the ruler of God's kingdom who by his death and resurrection brought that kingdom into this world. Secondly, they received Jesus. They received the Christ, but it was a specific Christ. It was Jesus. He was the man from Nazareth. He was the son of Joseph and Mary. They didn't receive Christ, the Messianic hope. The Jews already had Christ, the Messianic hope. They didn't believe in an idealized king, but a very specific, explicit one, Jesus. They received Jesus, the Jew from Galilee, the crucified Christ. And thirdly, they received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Not just as their Lord, but as the Lord, the, the ruler, the owner, for that's what the word means, the slave master, if you like. That is, because he is the Lord of all, he is received as their Lord. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Colossians 1, verse 15 following, we see Jesus as the Lord. He's the Lord of creation and he's the Lord of salvation. Just turn back a page there to Colossians 1 and see it again in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the heir of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things, whatever thing you want to think of, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. He is the Lord of creation. But not only the Lord of creation, but the Lord of salvation as well. Verse 19, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through his death on the cross, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, so that ultimately he is the Lord not only of this world, but of the world to come. Not only of the living, 
but of the dead. Not only of creation, but of salvation. He is the Lord. That's the one, chapter 2, verse 6 now, that they are receiving. They have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Christians do not receive Jesus as their friend. They do not receive Jesus as their brother. They do not receive Jesus as their helper. They don't even receive Jesus as their saviour. All those things are true, but that's not how Christians receive Jesus. They receive Jesus as their Lord. If he's not your Lord, he's not your brother or your friend or your saviour. You have to receive him as he really is, the Lord of heaven and earth. That's the only way you can receive him because that's the only one he is. He's never any less than that. Christians accept and receive Jesus as the Lord and ruler, the mighty creator and the conqueror of sin. For if he hasn't conquered sin for us, he cannot be our saviour. If he's not your Lord, he's not your saviour. If he is your Lord, it is because he has saved you. The one in whom all of God was pleased to dwell is how he was described in that passage I just read. That's how you must receive him. Now, as that is how the Colossian Christians did receive him, what are they to do next? Well, so they are to walk in him, end of verse 6. So, walk in him. Walk as you received. You received him as Lord, now treat him as Lord. Walk with him as Lord, acknowledge him as your Lord, live with him as your Lord. You can't receive him as your Lord and then ignore him. You can't receive him as your Lord and then order him around like a servant to to obey you. You receive him as Lord, so you must walk in him as your Lord. For our world, our life is viewed in these concrete terms of walking. Uh, Some modern translations put this into abstract, talk about living. But walking is how we live, step by step, on the journey of life. It's always in movement. From the time we received Christ, we walk on this journey. But we do not walk alone, we walk with him. But we do not walk with him as anything less than Lord. And so we live no longer self-directed in our walk, but Christ-directed in our walk, both in the way in which we walk and the direction in which we walk. Walk in him who is the Christ, the Lord, And so walk under his direction in his footsteps and walk his ways, not ours. For he is the Lord, he's the boss, that's what we've received him as. Now what is it like to walk in him? There are three characteristics that are listed here for you in verse 7. Firstly, rooted and built in him. Uh, Rooted is the image from plants, from trees. They put down their roots and from their roots they grow and develop. Their roots are deep down into him. It's a funny image because the roots in the tree show you a couple of things. It shows you growth and stability. That is, you don't walk away from him like a tree walking away from its roots. The tree grows where the roots are. We are to be rooted in him. We don't ever walk away from him. But the tree also grows out of the roots as we are to grow out of Christ who enables us to grow. 
And so it's a picture both of movement and stationary at the same time, isn't it? Trees move, they grow upwards, but they're stationary. They don't wander elsewhere. They grow where they're planted. So in Christ, we are to grow. We're not to stay stationary, stunted baby Christians. We are to grow, grow into the full maturity of the full tree, but never move away from the roots. And so we have been rooted in him. But then the image shifts from trees to the building. So they are to be built in him like walls rising on the foundation. Again, you see, this image of progress and movement without changing location. For that is the nature of the building on the foundations. You've got to build where they are, not where they're not. You've got to build upon them. So in Christ, we must go on, but never go on away from Christ. We go on in Christ. We walk in him. Second way of walking in him follows the first. Established as taught. So just as you are taught the faith, just as you are taught to trust him, so be established, be be firm, be verified, confirmed. It's a word this time that comes from the law courts. Be clearly established as is the case, as is the truth. Again, how the way forward here is kind of looking backwards. Hard to think of the illustration to grasp this, but rowing boats always reminds me of this. For the way to go straight in a rowing boat is to fix your eyes on where you've come from and keep your bearings on that. If you keep looking over your shoulder as you row, you certainly won't row straight. You've got to keep fixed where you're coming from in order to go where you're going to. Well, it is with that in Christ Jesus that we are going forward by keeping our eyes fixed on the beginning, fixed on the Lord Jesus whom we started with. That is the character. So we are established not in new teaching, we're established in the old teaching. That's what we're doing right here at the moment. Isn't it? What, what am I teaching you about? What am I talking to you about? I'm talking and teaching you about something that was written nearly 2,000 years ago. Here is a book that was written in around about 50 AD, uh, within the lifetime uh, of the, that contemporaries of Jesus, this book was written. We, we go back to keep studying what it is that he has said. For as we see what it is that he has said, we continue to be taught and we are taught just as we were at the beginning so that we can keep our focus right. The original teaching, the gospel teaching, is always the point of reference for Christians. The third way of walking in him is abounding in thanksgiving. Thanks is so uncharacteristic of Australians and Australian culture. We are very big on the whine and the whinge and the complain. It's one of the characteristics of the American culture, which... I think we do need to adopt rather than McDonald's or some other things that they have imposed upon us. The thing that we really should grasp is their thanksgivings, their annual major holiday of the year, Thanksgiving. It's a very interesting concept which shows the Christian foundation of the Pilgrim Fathers who at the end of their first year gave thanks to God for surviving and have continued down the centuries to remember to give thanks for the many blessings and benefits that they have received at God's hands. Thanksgiving is the characteristic 
of God's people. Not that I'm saying all Americans are God's people and no Australians are, but it is the characteristic of God's people. And so if we live in a country which is short in thanksgiving and we live as Christians, we should live differently to the people around about us. For thanksgiving is something that is part and parcel of being a Christian. Every meal. doesn't matter where it is, when it is. doesn't matter if you catch it and you're on the train or you're just walking around town or every meal. It's at your computer desk. It doesn't matter. Every meal, remember to give thanks to God for the food that you've received. Don't have to make a big elaborate thing about it. No one else in the office needs to see you bow your head and close your eyes. You can thank God with your eyes open. You can thank God with a mouthful. But be always thankful for the good things God has given to us, for the riches of the food that is so freely available to us. Thank him for every kindness that he gives to us. Every time you pray, pray with thanksgiving. That's just part of what prayer is about. We pray because we have needs. But before we start expressing our needs to God, let's remember to say thank you for the many things that have already been provided for us for they far outnumber our needs. And of course, we have so much to thank God for. For the fact of Christ Jesus, we have it all. We have everything that ultimately matters. And we can always be thanking God for the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter how desperate, miserable, lonely, unhappy your life may be at the moment. If you're in Christ Jesus, you always have things to thank God for. So we are to be abounding, overflowing, in thanksgiving. You never say thanks enough for what we have in Christ Jesus. All right, let's return just then to the logic of verses 6 and 7. As you received Christ Jesus, so now walk in him, rooted, built up, established, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. But there's a third element to receiving and walking. It's the negative corollary, not being taken captive. Not being taken captive by anything or by anyone else. The captive word here is the word kidnapped, not to be stolen away. It's fairly strong language. It's something done to us. I protect myself from from being bashed up by not walking down dark lanes late at night near pubs. It's just a matter of choice that I make. I know they are dangerous, therefore I do not do that. So likewise, do not walk in places where you will be captured away from the Lord Jesus Christ, captured by the empty, deceitful human philosophy. Now, don't think of philosophy as university philosophy. You can be captured by that. But basically, it's the everyday philosophies that are all around about us. It's the materialism that came to us in our mother's milk. It's the hedonism that we read about in every advertisement. It's the relativism whereby no one wants to make any moral statements about anybody except somebody who wants to make moral statements. It's that philosophy that is all around about us. Do not be deceived by its emptiness. It is deceitful. It is empty. It promises much but delivers little. Materialism is a classic in it, isn't it? We've never had a society so rich as our society and we've never had a society with so many unhappy people in it. It promises much, it delivers little, it is empty and deceitful is materialism. Don't be captured by these things. These things come to us according to human traditions and elemental spirits of the world. 
The human traditions are simple enough. They're following the fashions and fads of ideas and thoughts, remembering that one generation, it, it swears by an idea and the next generation disowns it. The elemental spirits of the world is a strange word. It means that the basic principles of the world, the basic uh, structures upon which it is all made. But the keys to these are the next phrase, and not according to Christ. That is their real failure and flaw. It's not Christ. If Christ is the Lord of creation and of salvation, of this age and of the age to come, then Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found, chapter 2, verse 3, then whatever is not according to Christ will ultimately be empty and deceitful. It will delude you and not deliver anything. Why? Well, we walk in him whom we have received because, that is verse 9, because, because in him is everything. In him is all. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. It's an incredible statement. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. A Jewish man wrote that. A Jewish man who used to persecute Christians for such blasphemy. A Jewish man who had become a Christian and now acknowledged that everything that was God lived in a human. The man Jesus, who was crucified. Everything that is God, life, power, love, righteousness, word, spirit, everything that you want to put under the category called God, it was all in him when he was a man. And of course he continues to be a man. It was all in him when he was the man from Nazareth. It was all in him when he was the man who died and rose again. It continues to be in the resurrected man who now rules the universe. That's why verse 9 is in the present tense of the verb. He now, everything that is in God now dwells in him bodily. And if everything is in him, then what does it mean for those of us who are in him? Well, he says in verse 10, and you have been filled. You come to your fullness. All the deity dwells in him and you are in him. So everything that there is to be had, you have in him. It's an extraordinarily arrogant claim that Christians make that in Christ is life and without Christ there is no life. For you come to fullness of life and yourself and creation in Jesus. And that fullness that you have, what will it mean? Motor cars, luxury yachts, overseas trips? No, it means that you will be circumcised in Christ Jesus. Everything that was meant by circumcision as marking you out as one of God's people, you get in Christ Jesus. It means you are buried in death in Jesus by baptism. That that which death stood for, the payment of the penalty for sin, that has already taken place for you in Christ Jesus. It means that you have been raised with him in the mighty work that God, the mighty power of God that took Jesus from the grave to rise up again, that's already at work in you. This new resurrection life is now yours. That new eternal life is now yours. It means that you were dead and buried and raised. That is, you have been made alive in him and with him. But of course, it all comes under the understanding that you were already dead. Dead in your trespasses, verse 13, and the uncircumcision, 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Because that's the key to it. It's the forgiveness. For without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. And there is no life in us. But with Christ, we have forgiveness of all our trespasses. Notice it doesn't say some, it's all. Doesn't matter how small the thing is that you've done, doesn't matter how huge it is, doesn't matter how much you feel guilty about it, doesn't matter how much you can't even remember it. All our trespasses have been dealt with. How? Verses 14 and 15. You see, we all are in debt to God by our trespasses. We all have the IOU that stands out against our name, but it has been, verse 14, cancelled by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Christ Jesus has wiped our debt clear. He's stamped it, cancelled. But in order to make it absolutely clear, there's this lovely image. He's taken it up on the cross and nailed it on the cross. See, the reason the Romans executed people by crucifixion was to make a public declaration of their victory over this man. You want to follow a king? Look what happens to kings who oppose Rome. We hang them up there to die in agony. Well, Jesus takes your sins, my sins, on the IOU beforehand, it's the metaphor that's used, and he nails it up to the cross to demonstrate that the power of the evil one to accuse you is over, is finished. When I stand before God on the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ will be there for me. The devil will be there, yes, and he'll say, ah, oh, Philip Jensen, I've got a long record for him. Let me tell you, God, of all the things that he has done wrong. And when he opens up the pages, everyone is stamped, cancelled, cancelled, cancelled because it was all dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ and all paid for by him. And therefore, I have come out of death to life. Have you? For moving from death to life means you have it all. And if you have it all, you have it all in Jesus Christ. And that's why you mustn't go to anyone else which is what we'll look at next week in the next part of chapter 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us, dealing with our sins so thoroughly and completely. And we pray, Father, that each one of us here might know that forgiveness of sins, that cancellation of the debt that, we have against, that you have against us, so that we might indeed come to this new life where we have all that matters, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.